15. Locomotive tried in the United States, and by constructing the first consecutive hundred miles of railroad ever built in the world, and now, with the war, she distinguished herself by initiating other mechanical devices of very different character a semi-submersible torpedo boat and the first submarine due torpedo a hostile war vessel. True. David Bushnell of Connecticut did construct a crude sort of submarine during the Revolutionary War, and succeeded in getting under a British ship with the machine, but he was unable to fasten his charge of powder and his effort consequently failed. Robert Fulton also experimented with submarines, or plunging boats, as he called them and was encouraged for a time by Napoleon I. The little David of the Confederate Navy is sometimes referred to as the first submarine but the David was not actually an underwater boat, but a torpedo boat which could run awash, with her funnels and upper works slightly out of water. She was a cigar-shaped vessel 33 feet long, built of wood, propelled by steam, and carrying her torpedo on a pole, forward. Dr. St. Julian Ravenel of Charleston and Captain Theodore Stoney devised the craft and she was built by funds subscribed by Charleston merchants, in command of Lieutenant W.T. Grassell, CSNN with three other men aboard. She torpedoed the United States ship New Ironsides, flagship of the fleet blockading Charleston. The New Ironsides was crippled, but not lost. After this United States vessels blockading Charleston protected themselves with booms, this resulted in the construction of an actual undersea torpedo boat, the Hunley. This extraordinary vessel has been spoken of as having had the appearance of a huge iron coffin, as well as the attributes of one, for she proved a death trap for successive crews on three trial trips. As there were no electric motors or gasoline engines in those days, she was run by hand, eight men crowded together turning a crankshaft which operated her propeller. After repeated sinkings, she was raised, manned by new men, and sent forth again. Finally. In Charleston Harbor she succeeded in destroying the United States man-o-war Housatonic, but at the same time went down, herself, drowning or suffocating all on board. A memorial drinking fountain on the battery, at the foot of Meeting Street, commemorates the men of the Confederate Army and Navy, first in marine warfare to employ torpedo boats 1863-1865. On this memorial are given the names of 16 men who perished in torpedo attacks on the blockading fleet. Among them Horace L. Hunley, set down as inventor of the submarine boat. The names of 14 others who were lost are unknown. Lord William Campbell, younger son of the Duke of Argyle, was British governor at Charleston when the revolution broke out. He had married a Miss Izzard, of Charleston, who brought him a dowry of 50,000 pounds, a large sum in those times. Their home was in a famous old house which stands on Meeting Street and it was from the backyard of this house that Lord William fled in a rowboat to a British man-o'-war, when it became evident that Charleston was no longer hospitable to a representatives of the Crown. Later his wife followed him to Great Britain, where they remained, the Pringle House, as it is now called, formerly the Bruton House, perhaps the most superb old residence in the city, was the headquarters of General Sir Henry Clinton, after he had captured Charleston, and was the residence of Lord Rawdon. The unpleasant British commander who succeeded Clinton, Cornwallis lived outside the town at Drayton Hall, which still stands, on the Ashley River. After his capture Cornwallis was exchanged for Henry Lawrence, a distinguished Charlestonian, who, though he wept over the Declaration of Independence, was before long president of the Continental Congress, and later went to France, where he was associated with Benjamin Franklin. 
John Jay and John Adams in negotiating the Treaty of Peace and Independence for America. Mrs. Ravenel says in her book that Sherman destroyed all but one of the superb old houses on the Ashley River, and when we consider that Sherman's troops invested Charleston just before the end of the war, and reflect upon the general's notorious carelessness with fire, we have cause for national rejoicing that Charleston, with its unmatched buildings and their splendid contents, was not laid in ashes, as were Atlanta and Columbia. Had Sherman burned Charleston it would be hard for even a Yankee to forgive him. Even without the aid of the Northern General, the city has been able to furnish disastrous conflagrations of her own, over a period of two centuries and more, and I find in the quaint reminiscences of Charles Fraser, already alluded to, a lamentation that, because of fires, many of the old landmarks have disappeared, and the city is losing its look of picturesque antiquity. To make matters worse, there came, in 1886, an earthquake rendering seven-eighths of the houses uninhabitable until repairs aggregating some millions of dollars had been made. Up to the time of the earthquake the old mansion from which Lord William Campbell fled at the beginning of the revolution, was adorned by a battlement roof. It is recorded that when the shop came, an Englishman was in the house, and that in his eagerness to get outdoors he pushed others aside, as he reached the front steps. However, the battlements came crashing down. He was the one person from that house who perished and his only monument is the patch of comparatively new stone where the broken steps have been repaired. My companion and I achieved entrance to one of the famous old Charleston houses which we had been particularly anxious to see, through the kindness of a lady to whom we had a letter of introduction, who happened to be a relative of the owner of the house. It seems necessary to explain, at this juncture, that in Charleston, many proper names of foreign origin have been corrupted in pronunciation. A few examples will suffice. The Dutch name Vanderhorst, conspicuous in the early annals of the city, has come to be pronounced Vandross Ligere. The name of another distinguished old family, commemorated in the name of Ligere Street, is pronounced Legri de Saucer has become Dissasar, with the accent on the first syllable, and Priolia is called Prelo. I was unaware of these matters when my companion and I visited the ancient house I speak of, though I had heard the name of the proprietor of the mansion spoken many times and recognized it as a distinguished Charleston name. I had never seen it written, however, without having given the matter much thought. I had, unfortunately, reached my own conclusions as to how it was spelled. Still more unfortunately, while I was delighting in the drawing room of that wonderful old house, with the portraits of ladies in powdered hair and men in cocked hats and periwigs looking down upon me from the walls, I was impelled to reassure myself as to the spelling of the name. Let us assume that the name sounded like Mouthy. That was not it but it will suffice for illustration. I suppose, I said to our charming Ciceroni, that the family name is spelled B-O-W-F-E-E. I had no sooner spoken than I realized, with a sudden access of horror what I had done. In guessing I had sinned, but in guessing wrong I had ruined myself. All this came to me instantly and positively as by a psychic message of unparalleled definiteness from the dead ancestors whose portraits hung upon the paneling. It was as though they had joined in a great ghostly shout of execration, which was the more awful because it was a silent shout that jarred upon the senses rather than the eardrums. Then, before the lady replied, while the sound of my own voice saying, B-O-W-F-E-E, seemed to reverberate through the apartment, I suddenly comprehended the spirit of Charleston, understood that, compared with Charleston, Boston is as a rough mining camp, while New York hardly exists at all. 
being a mere miasma of vulgarity. There was a long silence, in which the lady to whom I had spoken gazed from the window at the rainy twilight. Her silence, I am persuaded, was not intended to rebuke me, she was not desirous of crushing me, she was merely stunned. Indeed, when at last she spoke, there was in her tone something of gentleness. The name, she said, is both holy it is of Huguenot origin. Passionately I wished for an earthquake when that might cause the floor to open beneath me, or the roof to fall through and blot me from her sight. How to get away? That was my one thought. To cover my embarrassment, I tried to make small talk about a medallion of an emperor of France, which hung upon the paneling. The lady said it had been given to an ancestor of the Bofolis by the emperor himself, that, for some reason, seemed to make things rather worse. I wished I had not dragged the emperor into the conversation. It is getting dark, I said. It is time we were going. This the lady did not dispute, of our actual farewells and exit from that house. I remember not a detail, save that, as we departed, I knew that we should never see this lady again, that for her I no longer existed and that in my downfall I had dragged my companion with me. The next thing I definitely recollect is walking swiftly up Meeting Street beside him, in the rain and darkness of late afternoon. All the way back to the hotel we strode side by side in pregnant silence, neither did we speak as we ascended to our rooms. Some time later, while I was dressing for dinner, he entered my bedchamber. At the moment, as it happened, I was putting cufflinks into a dress shirt. With this task I busied myself dreading to look up. In the meantime I felt his eyes fixed upon me. When the links were in, I delayed meeting his gaze by buttoning the little button in one sleeve vent, above the cuff. Do you mean to say you button those idiotic little buttons? He demanded. I didn't know that anybody ever did that. I don't always. I answered apologetically. I should hope not. He returned. Then he continued. Do you remember where we are to be taken tomorrow? Yes. I said. To the Pringle House. Well said he, I just came in to ask you, as a favor, not to get off any fanciful ideas that you may have thought up, about the way to spell Pringle, chapter XXX politics, a newspaper and street Cecilia Charleston is very definitely a part of South Carolina, that is not always the case with the state and its chief city, it is not the case with the state and the city of New York, New York City has about the same relation to New York State as a gold piece has to a large tabletop on one corner of which it lies. Charleston, on the other hand, harmonizes into its state setting, as a beautiful ancient vase harmonizes into the setting afforded by some rare old cabinet. Moreover, Charleston's individuality amongst cities is more or less duplicated in South Carolina's individuality amongst states. South Carolina is a state as definitely marked though in altogether different ways as Kansas or California. It is a state that does nothing by halves. It has rattlesnakes larger and more venomous than other rattlesnakes. And it has twice had the disgraceful cold lease. Otherwise, to hell with the Constitution, please. As governor, for senator it has the old war horse Dillman. A man so admired for his power that, in our easy-going way, we almost forgive his dives into the pork barrel. Tillman has been to South Carolina more or less what the late Senator Hale was to his section of New England. Hale grabbed a Navy Yard for Kittery, Maine the Portsmouth Yard, where there never should have been a Navy Yard, Tillman performed a like service, under like circumstances, for Charleston. Both are purely political yards, naval officers supposed them, but were overridden by politicians, as so often happens, for in time of peace the Army and the Navy are political footballs. 
and it is only when war comes that the politicians cease kicking them about and cry, now, football, turn into a cannonball, and save your country and your country's flag, for obviously, if the flag cannot be saved, the politicians will be without a starry banner to gesture at and roar about, now, of course, with war upon us, any navy yard is a blessing, and the Charleston yard is being used, as it should be, to the utmost, but in time of peace the yard comes in for much criticism from the Navy, the contention being that it is not favorably located from a strategic point of view, and that, owing to bars in the Cooper River, up which it is situated, it cannot be entered by large ships. The point is also made that while labor is cheaper at this yard than at any other, skilled metal workers are hard to get. Friends of the yard contend, upon the other hand, that it is desirable because of its convenience to the Caribbean Sea, where, According to naval theory, this country will someday have to fight a battle in defense of the Panama Canal, the Pensacola Yard, it is planned out, is exposed and can be bombarded, whereas the Charleston Yard is far enough inland to be safe from sea attack. As to the channel, it is navigable for destroyers and other small craft though whether it would be so to a large destroyer which had been injured and was drawing more water than usual, I do not know. The practical situation of the Navy with regard to this and some of the other political yards, is like that of some man who has been left a lot of heterogeneous houses, scattered about town, none of them sweet to his purposes, and who is obliged to scatter his family amongst them as best he can, or else abandon them and build a new house. We have been following the former course, and are only now preparing to adopt the latter, by establishing a naval base at Norfolk. As mentioned in an earlier chapter, Charleston politics have been peculiar. Until a few years ago the government of the city had long rested in the hands of a few old families, among them the Gadstons and the Rats. The overthrow of this ancient and aristocratic rule by the election to the mayoralty of John P. Grace, an alleged friend of the people, was spoken of by the New York Sunday as being not a mere change in municipal government, but the fall of a dynasty which had controlled the city politically, financially and socially for a century and a half. Mr. Grace may be dismissed with the remark that he supported Bleece and that he is editor of the recently founded Charleston, American, which I had heard called a Hearst newspaper, and which certainly wears the Hearst look about it. On January 19, 1917, this newspaper printed a full account of the ball of the St. Cecilia Society, Charleston's most sacred social organization, never before in the history of the St. Cecilia Society, covering a period of a century and a half had an account of one of its balls, and the names of those attending, been printed, the publication caused a great stir in the city and resulted in an editorial, said to have been written by Grace, which appeared next day, and which reveals something of Charleston tradition and something of Grace, as well, it was headed, the St. Cecilia Ball, and ran as follows, we carried on yesterday a full account of the famous St. Cecilia Ball. From the foundation of Charleston until the present moment it has been regarded as an unwritten law that the annual events of this ancient society shall not be touched upon. Of course it was permissible for the 35,000 poor white people of Charleston to talk about the St. Cecilia, and to indulge in the thrilling sensation that comes to the proverbial cat when she looks at a queen. Some of them, moved by curiosity, even ventured within half a block of the Hibernian Hall to observe from afar the gay festivities the press being forbidden to cover St. Cecilia events, there grew up in the vulgar mind weird stories of what went on behind the scenes, while the St. Cecilia has enjoyed the happy privilege of journalistic silence, it has, therefore, 
correspondingly suffered on the tongue of gossip. The truth is that we always knew that the St. Cecilia was just about the same as every other social collection of human beings a little gaiety flavored with a little frivolity, nothing more, nothing less. There was a time when this society was the extreme limit of social exclusiveness. It was an anachronism on American soil, a matter of pure heredity, the right to membership in which was as fixed as median law, but transcendently above the median line. Now, however, since the society, in keeping with the spirit of the age, has relaxed its rules to admit from year to year if, indeed, only a few now and then members whose blood is far from indigo, we think it perfectly legitimate for the newspaper, which represents all classes of people, to invade the quantum sanctity of its functions which are now being opened to all classes. Following this, the editorial quoted from Don Seitz's book, telling how the elder James Gordon Bennett was in the habit of mocking events to which he was not invited, and how, in 1840, he managed to get one of his reporters into Henry I. Brevoort's fancy dress ball, the social event of the period. The quotation from Mr. Seitz's book ends with the following, a far cry from this to 1894, when Lord McAllister, arbiter of the 400 at Mrs. Astor's famous ball, became a leader on social topics for the New York world. It took many years for the Sumbridge at the reporting of social events to wear off and make the reporter welcome. Indeed, there is one place yet on the map where it is not even now permitted to record a social event, though the editors and owners of papers may be among those present. That is Charleston, South Carolina. The Charleston editor then resumes his own reflections in this wise, we regret to say, and it is the regret of our life, that we were not one of the editors present at the St. Cecilia. This, therefore, relieves us of the implied condition to adhere any longer to the silly and absurd custom which, in the language of this great newspaper man, has made its last stand on the map at Charleston. We are glad that we have forever nailed in the opinion of 100 million ordinary people who make the American nation, the absurdity that there is any social event so sacred, any people so different from the rest of us poor human beings, that we dare not speak of them, just why private social events should be, as Mr. Grace seems to assume, particularly the property of the press, it is somewhat difficult to explain, unless we do so by accepting as fundamental the theory that the press is justified in invading personal privacy purely in order to pander on the one hand to the new breed of vulgar rich which thrives on publicity, and on the other, to the breed of vulgar poor which enjoys reading that supremest of American inanities, the society page. What Mr. Seitz said in his book as to the reticence of Charleston newspapers, where society is concerned, island however, generally true amazingly so to a one who has become hardened to the attitude of the metropolitan press elsewhere. The society columns of Charleston papers hardly ever print the names of the city's real aristocrats, and in the past they have gone much farther than this, for they have been known to suppress important news stories in which prominent citizens were unpleasantly involved. It may be added that earthquakes are evidently classed as members of the aristocracy, since occasional tremors felt in the city are wantedly ignored by the press. Whether or not the paper edited by the fearless Mr. Grace ignores these manifestations I am unable to say. One can easily fancy his taking a courageous stand on such a subject as well as upon social matters. Indeed, with a few slight changes, his editorial upon the St. Cecilia Ball might be made to serve equally well after an earthquake shock. He might say, the press being forbidden to cover earthquakes, there grew up in the vulgar mind weird stories of what went on behind the scenes. 
while the earthquakes have enjoyed the happy privilege of journalistic silence, they have, therefore, correspondingly suffered on the tongue of gossip. He could also make the point that since, in keeping with the spirit of the age, the earthquake shakes people, if indeed only a few of them now and then, whose blood is far from indigo, we think it perfectly legitimate for the newspaper, which represents all classes of people, to invade the quantum sanctity of its functions which are now being opened to all classes, but of course, where the editor of such a paper is concerned, there is always the element of natural delicacy and nicety of feeling to be considered. Mr. Grace felt that because he was not present at the St. Cecilia Ball, he was free to print things about it. An earthquake would not be like the St. Cecilia Society it would not draw the line at Mr. Grace. At a Charleston earthquake he would undoubtedly be present. The question therefore arises, having been present, might his amour piero piari make him feel that to report the event would not be altogether in good taste? The Street Cecilia Society began in 1737 with a concert given on Street Cecilia's Day, and continued for many years to give concerts at which the musicians were both amateurs and professionals. Josiah Quincy, in his journal, tells of having attended one of these concerts in 1773, and speaks of the richness of the men's apparel, noting that there were many with swords on, when, in 1819, difficulty was experienced in obtaining performers. It was proposed that a ball be held in place of a concert, and by 1822 the society was definitely transformed from a musical to a dancing organization, which it has remained ever since. The statement in the American editorial that St. Cecilia balls have been the subject of scandalous gossip is, I believe, quite false, as is also the statement that the balls are now being open to all classes. Mrs. Ravenel in her book tells how the organization is run. Members are elected and all are men, though the names of the ladies of a member's household are placed on the club list, only death or removal from the city erases them change of fortune affects them not at all, a man whose progenitors have belonged to the society is almost certain of election, though there have been cases in which undesirables of good family have been blackballed, two blackballs are sufficient to cause the rejection of a candidate, men who are not of old Charleston stock are carefully investigated before they can be elected, but of late years not a few such, having been considered desirable, have become members, the members elect officers and a board of managers, and these have entire control of the society, three balls are given each year, one in January and two in February, until a few years ago the hall in which the balls are given was lighted by innumerable candelabra, only lately has electricity been used, the society owns its own plate, damask, china and glassware, and used to own a good stock of wines, of late years, I believe, wines have not been served, the beverage of the evening consisting of coffee, hot and iced, the greatest decorum is observed at the balls, young ladies go invariably with chaperones, following each dance there is a brief promenade, whereafter the young ladies are returned to their duennas who, if they be Charleston dowagers in perfection, usually carry turkey feather fans, cards are filled months in advance. As lately as the year 1912 every other dance was a square dance, since then. However, I believe that square dances have gone the way of candlelight. The society has an endowment and membership is inexpensive, costing but $15 a year, including the three balls. This enables young men starting in life to be members without going into extravagance, and is in accord with the best social tradition of Charleston, where the difference between an aristocracy and a plutocracy is well understood. Most of the rules of the organization are in written, 
one is that men shall not smoke on the premises during a ball, another is that divorced persons shall not be members or guests of the society. In this respect the St. Cecilia Society may be said, in effect, to be applying, socially, the South Carolina law, for South Carolina is the only state in the Union in which divorces are not granted for any cause whatsoever. This reminds me that the state has an anti-tipping law. The Pullman Porter is required to hang up copies of the law in his car when it enters South Carolina, and copies of it are displayed on the doors of hotel bedrooms. The penalty for giving or receiving a tip is a fine of from 10 to $100, or 30 days in jail. Perhaps the law is observed. I know, at least, that no one offered me a tip while I was in that state. The old grandees of Charleston were usually sent to Oxford or Cambridge for an education and English tradition still remains, I fancy, the foundation for what Charleston social life is today. I thought at first that Charlestonians spoke like the English but later came to the conclusion that there is in the pronunciation of some of them a quality resembling a very faint brogue a brogue such as might be possessed by a cultivated Irishman who had moved to England in his boyhood, and had been educated there. The vanishing of Tidewater, Virginia is also used by some Charlestonians, I am told, though I do not remember hearing it. Generalizations on the subject of dialectic peculiarities are dangerous, as I have good reason to know, naturally. Not all Charlestonians speak alike, I should say, however, that the first in the words, Papa and Mama, is frequently given a short sound, as in, Hep, also that many one-syllable words are strung out into two. For instance, Eight, is heard as, I, et, I, as in, Gray, Where, as, Way up, or, Way up, and, Hair, as, Hey up, Why, sometimes sounds like, Why, such words as, Come, and, Pum, are sometimes given the short, Cam, and, Pam, which, of course, occurs elsewhere, too. The name, Ralph, is pronounced as, Rafe, as in, Rate, which I believe is Old English, and the names, Saunders, and, Sanders, are pronounced exactly alike, both being called, Sanders. Tomatoes are sometimes called, Tomatters. Two dishes I never heard of before are, Hopping John, which is rice cooked with peas, and, Limping Kate, which is some other rice combination, what we, in the North, call an ice cream freezer becomes in Charleston an ice cream churn. Good morning is the salutation up to 3p meters whereas in other parts of the south good evening is said for the northern good afternoon. Charlestonians speak of being paratude not pigeon dude. Where in the north we would ask a friend how are things out your way? A Charlestonian may inquire how are things out your side? The expression going out means to go to St. Cecilia Balls and I have been told that it is never used in any other way. That island if a lady is asked, are you going out this winter? It means definitely, are you going to the St. Cecilia Balls? If you heard it said that someone was on Mount Pleasant, you might suppose that Mount Pleasant was an island, but it is not, it is a village on the mainland across the Cooper River, and what is to me one of the most curious expressions I ever heard is, do don't, as when a lady called to her daughter, Martha, do don't slam that door again. How generally these peculiarities crop out in the speech of Charleston I cannot say. It occurs to me, however, that, assembled and catalogued in this way, they may create the idea that slovenly English is generally spoken in the city, if so they give an impression which I should not wish to convey. Since Charleston has no more peculiarities of language than New York or Boston, and not nearly so many as a number of other cities, cultivated Charlestonians have, moreover, 
the finest voices I have heard in any American city. Chapter XXXI, G-U-L-L-A, and the back country the most extraordinary Negro dialect I know of is the Gullah, sometimes spelled Gullah, of the rice plantation Negroes of South Carolina and of the islands off the South Carolina and Georgia coast. I believe that the region of Charleston is headquarters for Gullah niggers, though I have heard the Argo spoken as far south as Sepal Island, off the town of Darien, Georgia, near the Florida line. Gullah is such an extreme dialect as to be almost a language by itself. Whence it came I do not know, but I judge that it is a combination of English with the primitive tongues of African tribes, just as the dialect of old Creole Negroes, in Louisiana, is a combination of African tribal tongues with French. A Charleston lady tells me that Negroes on different rice plantations even on adjoining plantations speak dialects which differ somewhat. And I know of my own knowledge that thick gullah is almost incomprehensible to white persons who have not learned, by long practice, to understand it. A lady sent a gullah negro with a message to a friend. This is the message as it was delivered. Miss I say all dem turn a folk done come shum. In tay you dug wine come shum. To get the gullah effect the sounds should be uttered very rapidly. Translated. This means, mistress says all them other folks have come to see her. Aren't you coming to see her? Shum, is a good dull word. It means all kinds of things having to do with seeing to see her. To see him. To see it. Thus. You shum. Intay. May mean. You see him her or it. Or you see what he she or it is doing. Or has done. For gulla has no genders and no tenses. Intay. Is a general question. Aren't you. Didn't you. Isn't it. Etc. Another common gulla word is. Bokra. Which means a white man of the upper class. In contradistinction to a poor white. I had known a Negro to refer to, the frame o' de bud, meaning the carcass, or frame, of a fowl. I ain't a, means, they aren't ain't there. A friend of mine who resided at Bluffton, South Carolina, has told me of an old Gullah fisherman who spoke in parables. A lady would ask him, have you any fish today? To which, if replying affirmatively, he would answer, Miss Eyes, the gate open, meaning, the door of the car, or fish box is open to you. If he had no fish he would reply, Miss Eyes, ebb tide done tack take crick, signifying, the tide has turned and it is too late to go to catch fish. This old man called whiskey, Mugundi smash. The term evidently derived from some idea of the word, burgundy, combined with the word, mash. Here is a Gullah dialect story, with a line for line translation. A train has killed a cow, and, 